0: Hi everyone, and welcome to South Asia Sphere, Himal South Asian's monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa, and I'm joined by my colleagues Shubanga, Marlon, and Shweta. Hi guys. Hi. Hello. Hi. So our big stories in this edition include the reinstatement of Nepal's parliament and a thwarted attempt to bring sedition charges against Al Jazeera after the media group contributed to an investigation of high-level corruption in Bangladesh. Let's begin with a follow-up on the situation in Nepal and why the situation there sounds so familiar to those of us following events in the region.
1: Uh, Thanks, Raisa. Yes, so Nepal's Supreme Court has finally given its verdict on Prime Minister K.P. Oli's decision to dissolve the House of Representatives late last year. Uh, Now, if you've been following recent events in Nepal, uh, and also something we covered in our last episode, the constitutional bench of the Supreme Court had been hearing a number of petitions against uh, against the move, and now it has decided against it. So and called it unconstitutional. So in doing so, it's also reinstated the house. This means that there will be no snap elections, um, and in fact, the court has directed the parliament be resumed within thirteen days. So uh, it's actually reconvening on Sunday. That's on March seventh. Um, now, while this gives a much-needed resolution to what was, you know, essentially a constitutional limbo in Nepal, it also, you know, basically takes the politics back to the situation it was in um, before the dissolution. So, you know, you have the same kind of balance of power. Um, PM Oli's government is still in a tenuous state uh, with one half of his party still trying to unseat him. And interestingly, all this has given quite a bit of power to the largest opposition party, which is Nepali Congress which has um only about 60-odd seats um, out of 275. So that's less than a fourth. But, you know, maybe enough to determine whether um uh, the no-confidence motion against the PM will fail or succeed. So in the coming days, we can expect quite a bit of political activity as both halves of the ruling party try to strike, you know, a winning parliamentary balance. And um interestingly, a no-confidence vote um, in nepal under current constitution requires um, that there should be a name of a prime ministerial candidate and uh, if the vote fails uh, another motion may not be brought for a full year um, so yeah interesting developments in nepal
2: so what happens to the decisions made during the crisis now that nepal supreme court has overturned this dissolution
1: well uh, yeah the verdict makes it clear that so all decisions made by what was essentially a caretaker government, uh, those will be rendered null and void. Um, it's worth noting that the cabinet made about 30 appointments in some important constitutional and statutory bodies, you know, during this period. Um, but in practical terms, it's not clear if there are any changes, uh, uh, in the future. So something to keep an eye on. I mean, uh, I imagine Sri Lanka must have experienced something similar in 2018 um, when the president suspended the parliament, right?
0: Right, exactly. So, so um, Sri Lanka's constitutional crisis in 2018 was different from Nepal in one way, which is that we, of course, briefly had two prime ministers, um, you know, when President Sirisena swore in Mahinda Rajapaksa as prime minister, But Sirisena also started the first members of a new cabinet and that included uh, ministers, state ministers, deputy ministers and secretaries to the ministries that were appointed, um, you know, after the prime minister, you know, after he attempted to appoint a second prime minister. Um, Of course, what happened was that the opposition parties, civil society and even the elections uh, commission went to court.
1: Um, Could you refresh our memory on what exactly happened?
0: Yeah, so what happened was Vikramasinghe actually retained uh, his prime minister position and the rogue cabinet, if you like, uh, that is the one appointed by Sirisena, was dismissed. Um, but a lot of the lower-level appointments made during that period actually stayed in their seats. Um, So, for example, I know someone who works at the language department who said that she got a new boss during the crisis. And um, after, um, you know, Prime Minister Vikram Singh was reinstated, um, that person didn't, you know, lose their position. So a lot of people actually remained in their seats, uh, which led to this curious situation where some of the political appointees were actually no longer loyal to the sitting government, um, which led to some instability.
1: Yeah, well, I think definitely something to follow up uh, in Nepal and especially um, because there are also some pending writ petitions against um, some of these appointments. Now, let's move on to our next story on the fallouts of an investigative report in Bangladesh. Marlon, you've been following this story closely.
3: Yeah, Shubanga So um, this all started on the 1st of February. When the investigative unit of Al Jazeera, they released this documentary called uh, All the Prime Minister's Men. Uh, Now, as we speak, it has over 7.8 million views on YouTube uh, and its trailer on Facebook has uh, garnered about 2.1 million views. And overnight, the hashtag uh, Mafia" it started trending on Twitter and other social media channels.
2: Sounds like this documentary has made quite a splash. So... What exactly was revealed in this report?
3: Yeah, you're right, Shweta. So, splash in the social media circles and outside of Bangladesh, uh, you know, more like a ripple within Bangladesh and its media, which we will get onto later. So, it's quite a dramatic piece of uh, investigative journalism, uh, mainly about General Aziz Ahmed, uh, who is the army chief, which is the highest uh, ranking officer in the army, and about his brothers, who are part of uh, a criminal gang colluding with the security forces of the country? Uh, the documentary also suggests that there were supposed links uh, to the Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina herself.
1: Well, what I thought was uh, particularly scandalous and revealing uh, was that it also the documentary also featured uh, photographs from the wedding uh, in the general's family, yeah. um, you know, with military bands and which included state dignitaries like the President of Bangladesh. Uh, but which were also attended by two of the general's brothers who were convicted of murder and on the run. So, and incidentally, the president also pardoned another brother um, who was serving a life sentence for murder. So it seems uh, quite a bit of a nexus at the very you know, highest levels of the Bangladeshi state.
0: What has been the response from the Bangladesh government? And um, what about the media? How have they been reporting it?
3: Well, Raisa, the government actually responded immediately. You know, the the foreign ministry deemed it a politically motivated smear campaign, which is false and defamatory. Um, However, when it comes to the media, there was practically radio silence over the issue. Yeah,
2: and I saw this tweet on the 3rd of February by Shahidul Alam. Um, this tweet had a picture of the February 2nd front pages of the three leading newspapers in the country. And strangely, any news about the documentary was absent.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, this is the sort of absence that calls attention to itself. Uh, But then the Daily Star, one of the leading newspapers in Bangladesh, um, I mean, its front page was part of that tweet you mentioned, Shweta. Now, they responded in their editorial on the 3rd of February, uh, by saying, and I quote, uh, readers are fully entitled to ask why there is such an absence of similar reporting in the local media. While admitting to our own limitations, it is really the reflection of the environment in which we operate, exemplified by the existence of the Digital Security Act, among others, which is perhaps the most comprehensively restrictive and oppressive laws against the
1: free press anywhere, end quote. So, it seems to me like they're suggesting there could be a government crackdown on those who report the story.
3: Yeah, it seems that way, Um Now, the next development in this story was on the 17th of February. Uh, Mosheer Malik, a lawyer, uh, filed a sedition case against the four people who were involved in the documentary, including David Bergman and uh, Mustafa Suwag, the director general of Al Jazeera. Um, Malik accused them of tarnishing the image of the country and conspiring to topple the government. But on the 23rd, uh, the court asked Malik to withdraw the case, uh, citing that the case was uh, filed without taking um, approval from the relevant authorities. Uh, just to make it clear, the, the court did not refute the claim that Malik made in his case. Uh, rather, it took issue with the manner in which the case was filed. Basically, it was you know, like a logistical issue.
0: Um, This is actually reminding me of India where the filing of sedition cases is now being used as a tactic to stifle dissent with numerous instances of cases being filed against journalists and activists in the recent past as we explored in a media file as well. Um, This situation in Bangladesh seems to have been a similar attempt which was quashed by the court.
2: Exactly, Raisa. And in India we're seeing this visible trend where UAPA and sedition are increasingly used to crack down on criticism. For example, the two recent judgments that highlight this are the observations made by a Delhi court while granting bail to Disha Ravi, the young climate activist who was arrested on charges of sedition. So the court rejected almost every accusation by the Delhi police, and Judge Dharmendra Rana stated that, Citizens cannot be put behind bars simply because they disagree with the government. The Bombay High Court also granted conditional bail on medical grounds to the poet-activist Varavara Rao. Moving on, we would like to introduce a new section we're calling Around South Asia in Five Minutes, where we'll look at interesting news stories from around the region. To start off, Raisa, you've been looking at Tibet.
0: That's right, Shweta. So this U.S. bipartisan bill, which is aimed at dealing with coerced labor, has made reference to Tibet. The bill is called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, and it was passed with an overwhelming majority in September 2020. At first, it focused on the Xinjiang Autonomous Region, suggesting that goods from there cannot enter the U.S. unless it can be proved that they have not been produced as a result of forced labor, The updated bill now refers to Tibet noting the military-style training, ideological education, and vocational training that hundreds of thousands of residents of the Tibet Autonomous Region are made to participate in before being transferred to job postings. It also noted the similarities between the two regions.
2: Myanmar experienced one of the bloodiest days of protests on the 3rd of March. Um, The UN reported that 38 people had been killed by security forces, bringing the tally of those killed since the protest began to more than 50 and over 1,000 government officials, activists and journalists have been detained since
3: the February 1st coup. Um, there is news of another coup coming from Bhutan, uh, dubbed the most peaceful country in the region by the Global Peace Index. Um, to be fair, it's actually a mini-coup attempt. Uh, a top general and two judges were arrested for conspiring to overthrow the country's top military officer and chief justice.
1: And uh, in Sri Lanka, so the month of February saw some tensions in its relations with India uh, after the government pulled out of a deal with India and Japan to jointly develop a terminal uh, at the Colombo port, the East Container Terminal, uh, following protests by port unions against foreign involvement in the port. So. Uh, More recently, the cabinet has actually approved another terminal, the West Container Terminal for Development with private companies nominated by India and Japan. And uh, moving on to our final section, um, where we'll be talking about what we've been watching, reading or listening to. Um, Now, we don't have a title for the section yet. So here's a chance to win our right side of map. Send us a suggestion for the section and the best title will win the map. Um, So shall we begin?
0: Yeah, so uh, Marlon and I actually watched Zakaria's Halal Love Story as part of a movie review we were working on. Um, I found it to be quite a light and fun watch. You know, it was quite uh, funny in parts. But the more I worked on the review, the more mixed my feelings were. Uh, Marlon, what did you think of it?
3: Um, Yeah, exactly. I think I agree. I I liked it. I thought it was charming. But after working on the review by Ali and Sharma, you know, my perspective also changed quite a bit. Um, Just to plug the review a bit more, you can check it it out on our website and there'll be a German translation of it coming out soon.
1: So in the world of music, streaming and podcasting, um, Spotify has finally been launched across four countries in South Asia. So that's Bangladesh, Nepal, Pakistan and Sri Lanka. Uh, It had been around uh, at least in India for the last two years. Um, So this was seen as, you know, kind of a big news. However, it seems like uh, one still can't access their podcasts in these countries due to rights restrictions. So, you know, if your main interest um, is in podcasts, then I'd recommend sticking with the platforms you already might be using.
2: And I have two book recommendations. Um, These are two new translated editions from the um, well-known Murti uh, Classics Library of India, um, one is the iconic 18th century poet Bhume Shah's Sufi lyrics and the second being Poems of the First Buddhist Women. Um, this is one of the oldest surviving works by women composed more than two millennia ago.
3: Thanks, Shweta. I think you brought in some much-needed refinement to this segment. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes.
0: So, um, I recently watched... White Tiger on Netflix, which is based on the book by Aravind Adiga. I did enjoy like certain parts of the book, especially those that talked about apathy among the upper middle class. So, you know, following on from, from the book, there were parts that the movie did get right. So, for example, the character of Pinky, which is played by Priyanka Chopra, as she kind of careers down the road after a night out where she's totally oblivious to the family sleeping by the side of the road and it's only the driver in the backseat who notices it. Um, That was quite an apt way to show how the middle and upper middle class India, you know, they often turn a blind eye to the poverty that surrounds them. Um, And it made me reflect as well. Um, I think it's something that is quite relatable to Colombo as well. Um, But at the same time, I did agree with some criticism, um, again extending from the book, that the characters were sometimes caricatures as well.
2: Yeah, I've read that the protagonist is kind of portrayed as this brash person who is willing to go to any lengths to get rich, and in a way that could be interpreted as the author's hidden bias or prejudice.
0: Yeah, exactly. So he describes his own hometown in Bihar as the darkness and he paints this as this like place of squalor. Um, And the movie also too often kind of gives way to these kind of cliched tropes in how India is portrayed. Um, But as I said, the apathy of the upper middle class is kind of where it rings a bit more true. Um, and it actually reminded me of, uh, in parts, of the much subtler movie Parasite, uh, which I enjoyed more, but it kind of touches on very similar themes.
3: Yeah, you're right, Raisa. I think there were definitely echoes of Parasite in the film. But those engagements, I felt, were quite you know, simplistic. So as you can guess, I'm not the biggest fan of the film. Um, I've also read the book like over a decade ago, and I remember finding it uh, very interesting, at least in my first read. But then I studied it in, in uni and, well, I think you know what happens when you study things, especially
1: literature.
2: Did you start hating the book?
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, uh, well, I, that's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere. Um, do head to our website himalmag.com to see the cartoons illustrating this episode by Gihande De And while you're at it, check out our membership plans and support our work. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.
2: Bye. Bye.
1: For more Himal podcasts, go to HimalMag.com podcasts.